Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think you must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. There are many ways to fall down the rabbit hole, and it may be far easier than you think. That sentence comes from the back cover of Eva Gallagher's relatively new book, Web of Lies, which is a deep dive into the rising threat of conspiratorial thought, both in Ireland and international. Eva has spent years researching and investigating what I would call the darkest corners of the internet, which feature some of the world's oldest prejudices repackaged and relaunched for our time. And they don't show any signs of going away. And today, boys and girls, she is joining us on the Arrowman in Stockholm podcast to talk about her work and about the book. Eva, you're very welcome back. I think you appeared on the podcast before, didn't you? I did indeed. So thanks for having me back. That was a while so ago. I realized it was September yeah, but... 2021. I checked today. Did you check today? So it wasn't too traumatic yeah. an experience anyway. Listen, no, a, lot has, a lot has changed since the last time we spoke, right? But can we mm. just sort of start again with just a little bit of a description about who you are and how you came to be sort of working in the darkest corners of the internet, if you like? Yeah, exactly. There's no college course for this. So I definitely didn't plan to, to make it my career. Um, but essentially, I um, went back to study journalism in my late 20s. And when I was in just the end of my master's there, I got offered an internship with Storyful. So um, for those people who don't know, like what Storyful is, it was set up by Mark Little, who is a former RTE um, reporter and correspondent in I think 2010, possibly. Um, and kind of on the back of my understanding of it is uh, the Arab Spring and the kind of realization that Mark had at the time that like online video content was going to become one of the major kind of uh, elements, I suppose, of news news telling, I suppose, in as, as the internet kind of um, became more of a thing. Um, it was very forward thinking, now, to, to be honest. And um, so I started there as um, kind of on the, the I suppose, the, the content analysis side of stuff, but eventually moved to the, the news team, which is where I want, wanted to be, um, and started kind of working on verifying online video content. So essentially that's what Storyful journalists do. They find um, any kind of videos that are posted online from any kind of breaking news scenarios. There's a whole process in place to kind of um, verify that the video shows what, it's, what it claims to show. And then news organizations can then use that footage safe in the knowledge that it is accurate and it, uh, it is um, true to life. Um, and then after, I think I was on that team for maybe a year or so, um, and there was, you know, a realization, I think, on the back of kind of Trump's election, Brexit and everything that kind of happened um, around 2016, that we were going to have to start looking kind of deeper at what was happening in the online world. So they set up a new team called, I think we were called the News Intelligence Team at the time, which sounds very fancy. Um, and we were kind of set up to, I mean, it was it was kind of a, a broad kind of um, idea of what we were going to look at. We just wanted to kind of see what we could do as regards online investigations to kind of figure out um, the kind of nefarious activity that was going on online. Um, and so that was kind of my first delve into places like 4chan and 8chan and the kind of real, like, yeah, real dark corners of the internet, I suppose. Um, and as soon as you start kind of looking at the stuff, you, you kind of realize that um, false information is obviously like one of the, the biggest issues, I suppose, with the online world. I'd say this was, what, 2016, 2017. So I kind of started looking into, yeah, 
mis and disinformation online, extremist movements, conspiracy theories, trying to understand um, who the people were who were kind of behind pushing this kind of content, how they were being used by different kind of organizations and political movements, how the internet was being used to spread all this stuff. Um, and so I was doing that for a few years. And then just actually three years ago, I think I'll be I'll be in ISD now three years next week. Um, ISD um, came to me and asked if I would be interested in going to them to work as a research analyst. So ISD is a UK-based counter-extremism think tank that kind of research and kind of provide different analysis on the kind of entire spectrum of, of extremist thought from kind of far right to far left to Islamist extremism, Hindu nationalism, the kind of the, the whole shebang. So we have people working across all of those um, issue areas. And so, yeah, I essentially moved there, as I say, three years ago. I'm kind of essentially doing the same work that I was doing in Storyful, only the, the like the best part of this job that now is that we are given like months to work on a, on a on a project instead of you know when you're doing this for a news organization you're given hours you know what I mean and sometimes you need that kind of longer period of time to to really understand this stuff so yeah it's been great for just kind of um a lot of the time having the freedom to really kind of figure out what kind of investigations that we want to do and the ones that are kind of most beneficial to understanding this this entire world I suppose so since then I've kind of um, conspiracy theories kind of became my niche, I suppose. I started really trying to understand QAnon when it was exploding in um, at the start of the pandemic um, and kind of just followed the kind of evolution of QAnon since then and the different kind of conspiratorial movements that came out of the pandemic. And um, yeah, and then that landed to me writing a book last year. So there you go. And a fine book it is too. I'm sitting here in my hand as we're talking, right? <laughs> well, just before we go on to that, right, the ISD is the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. And it's basically, yes. uh, you know, it deals with disinformation, hate speech, that kind of thing, where those things come from, right? You mentioned there, and you said it very, very quickly, but I, I need you to sort of define, if you can, the difference between disinformation mm. and misinformation, right? Because those, those are two separate things. And sometimes we use them interchangeably. Yeah, and admittedly, I use them interchangeably and everyone I know and, and work with uses them interchangeably, but they are, <laughs> as you say, two very distinctly different things. So misinformation is false information that is spread without the intent to deceive. So say myself or yourself or anyone you know shares something online, they think it's true and they're sharing it because they think it's true. Um, disinformation, on the other hand, is sharing false information with the knowledge that the information is false. So you're intentionally trying to deceive people. Um, so it's really the intent there that it, that is the difference between them. Now, the, the reason I suppose that the terms are used interchangeably is because it's often very difficult to figure out intent, especially when you're looking at this in an online context. It's very hard to figure out if people truly believe what what they're what they're sharing online or whether they are doing it to purposefully deceive people. Um, but I think it's important to know, I suppose, that there is a difference between those things. Do you know what I mean? Um, lately, we've seen a somewhat exponential rise in far right activity in Ireland, right? You've had uh, people blockading the entrances to uh, direct provision centres or centres where people who were seeking international protection were gathered. Uh, we've seen all sorts of all the threads that you've mentioned there from anti-Semitism to QAnon to vaccine resistance, everything dragged into these things. Is there, you know, is this simply, you know, the latest sort of frontline in the culture war? Because it seems on the surface, it's a very complex uh, web of conspiracy theories that people are basing on. But the one thing they all have in common is that, you know, an awful lot of it looks very bonkers from the outside, right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I suppose what we're seeing now, I kind of tend to frame it as, 
you know, the world before the pandemic and the world after, because the the pandemic completely changed the kind of dynamics of all of these movements. Um, and the way that I'll, I'll normally try and explain it is that, you know, say all these movements that we've kind of seen over the past few years, like the, the anti-vaccine movement, uh, QAnon, far-right extremists, climate change denialists, you know, they've, they've all existed. They've all existed, especially in the online world for quite a number of years at this point. But before the pandemic, they kind of, for the most part, stuck to their own little spaces online and stuck to their own communities. There was certainly overlap, overlap between, you know, a few of those kind of movements. But for, as I, for the most part, they stuck to their own belief systems, their own campaigning and things like that. But the pandemic essentially made them all coalesce. So especially around the anti-lockdown movement, when you saw, you know, on the likes of Telegram or Facebook or something like that, there were groups set up for the anti-lockdown movement and they brought together all of these disparate movements. So what you now have is this kind of hybridized conspiratorial force. And like the way I would try and explain it to people is that the thing, because I think people find it hard to figure out why people jump from like anti-vaccine conspiracy theories to anti-immigrant, you know, disinformation and stuff like that. Um, and the thing that like kind of binds them all together is this kind of conspiratorial mindset. Do you know what I mean? It's not just a belief in certain conspiracy theories. It is kind of a view of the world through the prism of conspiracy theories. Um, so instead of believing that say take something like the war in Ukraine, that you know, the war in Ukraine is a result of, of Russia invading a sovereign country, they will think that there's something else going on you know there's a very like a very different kind of ideas for for what they think is going on some of it is very reflective of russian disinformation about the war and then others are, are kind of the more outlandish kind of the war is completely fake and it's all green screens and do you know what i mean so it's kind of that kind of a worldview is the thing i think that that, that kind of binds a lot of those movements um and so I think, like since the pandemic, and this happened internationally, it's not just in Ireland. Ireland is kind of one cog in an international movement, I suppose, um, is that the, the kind of far right element in this country really latched on to that anti-lockdown movement very, very early on. So if you remember the kind of earliest anti-lockdown marches and protests in Dublin, they were organized by groups like the Irish Freedom Party and the National Party. Um, so they were very, very much front and center of kind of taking advantage of, uh, of that movement. Um, and what has now really happened is that the audience for especially the kind of anti-immigrant, anti-asylum seeker kind of rhetoric that we've seen over the past six months or so, that the audience for that has essentially grown um, because they just have a larger audience because all of these people have kind of come from all the all these different kind of um, corners of, you know, conspiratorial movements or whatever. Um, and I see this all the time and it's like telegram channels that were set up for the anti-lockdown movement are now just like wall to wall, either anti-LGBT stuff or anti-asylum seeker, anti-immigrant stuff. So I think a lot of people that may not have been exposed to those kind of the, those beliefs and those ideologies beforehand are now very much kind of exposed to them now and are, are you know, gravitating towards them, I suppose. Uh, that's mm. kind of... Mm. You mentioned on the back of the book, as I read it at the very start, that there's many ways to fall down the rabbit hole and it may be far easier than you realise. One of the things that struck me lately uh, on social media, right, and my own social media use is sort of Twitter, a bit of Instagram, a bit of Facebook, that kind of thing. I try to stay off Facebook because it's always been a bit bonkers. But mm -hmm. there's been an astonishing rise in the number of people with uh, opinions about transgender people who never mentioned them before, right? Mm -hmm. Is this, like, is, is transphobia, or is it like this anti-LGBTQ plus thing, is that now the gateway drug for conspiratorial thinking in your estimation? I think it's probably one of them, right? And I think that, um, God, sometimes it's like a minefield going into this subject. I mean, transphobia has been 
part and parcel of all of these, or not all of these movements, sorry, part and parcel, certainly of far-right extremism for years and years. This was, I mean, when I say the earliest days when I was on 4chan, I mean, transphobia was just absolutely all over the place. Um, and it's kind of reflective of the kind of larger trends that we've seen where ideas and, you know, rhetoric that kind of lived on the fringes of the internet maybe 10 years ago are now kind of part and parcel of, you know, your, your Twitter feed and your Facebook feed and things like that. Um, and it does seem like a lot of movements have kind of caught on to the fact that anti-trans and this kind of anti quote-unquote gender ideology kind of movement is becoming a very successful way to kind of pull people into their line of thinking um and I think a lot of that kind of stems from just a I suppose a lack of understanding that a lot of people have around kind of the the evolution of thought around kind of gender and sexuality over over the past few years I think it's it's quite easy to um to kind of play on people's lack of understanding of that um, and to, you know, frame it as something that is, you know, a mental health disorder or just, you know, people who are, uh, or, you know, just try to frame, I suppose, you know, transgender identity as something that isn't real. Do you know what I mean? Um, and then, yeah, I suppose it's just, it's just become something that it certainly seems to be something that's radicalizing people that have never really been radicalized into that kind of thinking before do you know what I mean um and a lot of it is just kind of old anti-gay slurs that have been repackaged to kind of target the trans move the, the the trans community um this idea again that this idea of kind of trans ideology or gender ideology kind of puts forward this idea that number one that it's a kind of politicized movement but also that it is um that it's not really reflective of people's lived reality that it's kind of based on belief instead of reality do you know what I mean so yeah. it's kind of um I so yeah I mean it is certainly one of the things and as I say I finished the book a year ago and I think that like at the at the very end of the book I kind of make the point of saying that the anti-trans stuff is going to be one of the 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 biggest things that that, yeah. that will come out of this movement and I think that's it's it's very reflective especially in Ireland, I feel like we kind of felt like we had escaped that for, for a certain amount of time. But I think, again, the past year has really shown that we're not at all immune to any of this stuff. And it's it's very, very much become um, become a big bubbling movement here, too. Yeah, but like it seems to be absolutely everywhere now, this opposition mm -hmm. to drag queen story hour. And like this is the, the, the thing that I find stunning is that it's exactly the same playbook no matter where you look. If you look on Swedish yeah. social media or American social media or Irish social media. And, you know, forgive me for being conspiratorial here, Aoife, but it would <laughs> seem to me that somewhere there's a playbook that people are sort of, you know, looking at, right? Is it, are they finding these things on 4chan, 8chan, Telegram channels? Is this where, and to use the word that you used recently, is this where people are being radicalized because they enter through something like that they go you know well of course you shouldn't have men in women's spaces and then mm. all of a sudden it's all you know have you heard of the great replacement and how the jews control the world yeah exactly i mean the idea of there being like this kind of pdf playbook is obviously not not true right but no, i mean i suppose the way that the way that they work is that as i say I think if you imagine the Irish movement as being part of the, this kind of international movement, um, and as you say, you have the same conversations going on, as I say, in, in Sweden, in the UK, in Ireland, in the, U in the US, um, and it's also a transnational movement, right? So they're constantly swapping um, content, narratives, strategies, um, kind of, a, you, you know, across across borders, essentially, right? So 
I think a lot of the time it is seeing what has worked in other countries um, and just using whatever it is that, that's worked um, and, and adopting it, I suppose, to, to, to whatever country you're, you're in. You mentioned Drag Queen Story Hour and I hope I'm not scooping myself here. I don't think I am, but um, we're <laughs> actually going to put out a big report in the next couple of weeks um, looking at that specific activity across, I think, five different countries. Um, and I mean, it's, it's you know, sometimes I think at ISD, we, because we have people working across the globe and, uh, you know, people are kind of looking at these in, in different regions, it's very obvious to us that this stuff is happening all over the world at the same time. Um, but I think that there's probably a lack of reporting on the fact that it, that this is all happening at the same time. So we're kind of hoping and hoping that, that, that this report will kind of bridge that gap a little bit. But it's so clear. I mean, you literally have the exact same language being used, the same kind of confrontational and abusive tactics being used where people kind of stand outside libraries and shout abuse at parents that are taking their children into into drag queen story hour or, or um, confronting drag performers, shouting groomer at them, shouting pedophile at them. It's all the same stuff. Um, so I think it's more reflective of the fact that this is just a, a massive international movement and that they are so aware of what can work and what has worked in other in other places and they just adopt it and use it um, as they see fit, you know. Mm. I was talking to a man the other day um, who shall remain nameless and he kind of dropped something into the conversation about COVID and vaccines and if, you know, the COVID vaccine might be somehow the root of all evil, you know, because mm. that's the breaking point. How much of an effect does the COVID pandemic, the vaccine, the fear that everybody lived under, because everybody did live in fear for a while there. Mm. We didn't know, go know what was going on. How much of that was a steroid, an accelerant for this kind of thought, in your opinion? Oh, I mean, it's hard to kind of understate or over. It, it's just, it, it was insane. It was one of the the biggest changes, as I say, that we've seen. I kind of, you know, I discussed the kind of different, the, the online dynamics of the movements and how that was a huge element of it. But even on a personal level, and you kind of touched on it there. Fear is one of the biggest kind of things that will pull, that will make people kind of embrace conspiratorial thinking. Um, in the first chapter of the book, actually, I talked to a couple of psychologists and um, about what it is, you know, the research that, that that is there for why people kind of tend to embrace conspiracy theories. And they said that what they have found is that when people, when certain psychological needs are not being met in people's lives, they will be more inclined to embrace this kind of thinking and those psychological needs are the need to feel safe and secure in the world that you live in the need to know what is going on in the world and the need to feel kind of good about yourself and good in your in your social circles right so when those needs are not being met people will be more inclined to embrace the conspiracy theories because they kind of try to fulfill those needs but they actually don't right so if you take the pandemic for an, for an example especially at the start of the pandemic no like we as you say there was so much fear no one really knew what was going on um so those needs were definitely not being met and then you had lockdowns that just isolated people from their social circles and people went online to try and fulfill that need to try and find that connection again um so i mean I think everyone, everyone that I know and everyone that I've talked to has, you know, those stories that you just mentioned there, maybe someone that, you know, that before the pandemic was, as far as you knew, a fairly, you know, stable minded kind of a person and has now fallen down the, you know, that, that rabbit hole, I suppose, you know, um, and I think it's, you know, 
I think it's quite understandable to be honest I think in a lot of ways it's very understandable when you take as, as I say the very start of the pandemic when no one knew what was going on and you were stuck in your in your home with only you know only able to to leave your house through a couple of kilometers or whatever a day um and you're looking for the answers and conspiracy theories kind of provide those answers you know what I mean and they also provide them in quite simple neat packages so you don't really need to understand the real complexities of how a virus is transmitted or how many people will get infected or how it's going to impact hospitals and and things like that you don't need to understand all that it will give you this really simple narrative where actually this is all part of a plan that has been instigated by elites around the world it is to take away your civil liberties which is you know happening look there's lockdowns you're not able to leave your home this is all you know it's a part of a master plan for what whatever kind of you know insert whatever here kind of a thing there's loads of different kind of theories involved in that um and because the ecosystem that promotes this stuff i mean they're they can be very very convincing especially when it comes to things like vaccines right because they're kind of playing on people's lack of knowledge of how science works, especially in a, in a lot of ways, I think. And that's kind of reflective of a lot of kind of science denial movements is that they they are playing on, on people's kind of lack of knowledge, lack of very basic knowledge. You know what I mean? Um, anyone who hasn't gone and, you know, done a PhD in, in some kind of scientific research does not have an understanding of how scientific research actually works. Um, and the anti-vaccine movement is, is so good at playing on that. Um, again, I go into this There's a whole chapter in the book on kind of science denial techniques and stuff like that. Um, that are kind of used across a lot of these movements but you know one of them that they'll use especially the anti-vaccine movement is good at using this is just using anecdotes and stories which are really really powerful ways to pull people in so if you see a story online of someone who got the COVID vaccine and three weeks later they died it's you know they will frame it in a way that will leave absolutely no doubt about the fact that it was the vaccine that killed someone but there's actually no evidence to prove that it's all kind of based on this suspicion and this idea that that the vaccines are dangerous um but those stories are really really powerful and they they are kind of a um yeah they're a powerful way to kind of pull people into that line of thinking so yeah i mean it's as i say it's hard to kind of overstate how 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 big of a thing the pandemic was for kind of pulling people into into this kind of line of thinking We've used the word radicalization. And one of the things that I've been thinking about recently as well is how cult-like a lot of this behavior is, right? Because once you go in, it doesn't matter if you've come into it through anti-vax or if you've come into it through transphobia or whatever. Once you're in, you have a vested interest in continuing. You know, QAnon is a perfect example of that. It becomes mm. like a cult. I was listening to a podcast on the BBC Sounds app recently called A Very British Cult about one of these lifestyle uh, guru kind of things. I know you're nodding your head there. I don't know if you actually heard the thing. but um, No, it's on my it's on my list, actually, to, to yeah, listen to. I, I, I'm not going to spoil it for you. It's very, yeah. very good. Now, I would suggest that when you're not listening to my podcast, go listen to that. But <laughs> one of the things that uh, one of the advisors in it, or some of the advice in it is that with people who are in a cult, never tell them it's a cult, right? You mm. don't engage on that level with, you know, you basically you try to be supportive and you try to, you know, but you don't go, this is a bunch of bullshit, you know. And one man lost his daughter through doing this, right? She doesn't talk to him anymore, no longer part mm. of his family. Sorry, there was one little spoiler there, right? And <laughs> um, when you look at these things and when you speak to psychologists as you've done for the book and that kind of thing, how do we deal with people like the man I met the other day who all of a sudden says, oh, you know, you have to ask yourself if maybe the vaccine didn't play a part in that. How do we mm. deal with that? Because if I go to him, you, you fucking idiot, stay off the internet you know you're destroying yourself here obviously he's not going to react very well you know so how, yeah. how do we best approach that in our ordinary lives i suppose is what i'm asking you 
Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult, right? Um, and I always start the, this answer by saying it's very difficult and there is no really easy answer to it. But you kind of touched on it there. I think the there are a couple of things that you shouldn't do, which is telling people that they're wrong. <laughs> no one likes to be told that they're wrong, unfortunately. And that's the default, right? You're always going to think that, oh, if I just tell these people that they're wrong and show them fact-checking articles that kind of prove that the that what they're saying is wrong, then, then they should kind of realize, do you know what I mean? But that is just simply not going to work. Um, and really the way to approach it is to approach it with empathy. So if you think back to what I said about the kind of the psychological needs that are kind of missing in people's lives to embrace conspiracy theories, that's really what you should be thinking about. You should be trying to figure out what it is, what the, the real deep meanings for why people are embracing these kinds of theories and the thing is is that you'll often find that um people we probably have the same fears as a lot of these people that are that are kind of involved in these theories right because if you think about say technological advancements right technological advancements kind of scare the crap out of me do you know what i mean if you think about things like ai and the way that it can be used or like you know digital surveillance and the way our data is used and things like that there things like that are, are quite scary to me and you might find that the people that have, you know, embraced, you know, conspiracy theories like the Great Reset or something like that are also really scared of technological advancements. So it's actually about trying to kind of find that even ground and saying, actually, I'm scared of those things, too. Um, and trying to kind of go from there to kind of say, well, I'm scared of this and this is how I deal with it. And this is what I think is going on. But it's all about building up trust with someone you really really need to have a certain level of trust um and it's a long-term kind of a process it's not something that'll happen in a month or two months two months it might take a couple of years um and then the kind of the top line I suppose of advice that I would always give people because you know I talk to, to people for the book that have you know friends and family members that have kind of fallen fallen down the the rabbit hole and some of them just were not able to keep those relationships going because it was damaging their own mental health and you know damaging their own lives I suppose and I, I kind of I get that as well but I will always try to tell people to try and keep those lines of communication open just at, at least as much as, as they possibly can and that means if, even if you have to set ground rules and just be like we're not talking about COVID we're not talking about vaccines we're not talking about politics you know let's talk about something else um, I think having a lifeline there um, so that if people do find that they you know I suppose if they find their blue pill as such as opposed to the red pill that, that radicalizes people if they find their blue pill that they will have a lifeline there to kind of you know draw them back into reality um if they don't have that they may just be pushed further and further away and kind of disassociate from from reality completely so yeah that's always the main piece of advice that I'll give is to keep those lines of communication open try to form a kind of really good level of trust and um a sense of empathy I suppose with, with, with them um and then the other thing yeah and I mean I kind of cite the, this in the book as well there's a guy called Mick West who runs he runs a website called Metabunk which is kind of all about debunking conspiracy theories and it's re it's a really really good website he kind of goes into you know all of the kind of more old school ones 9-11 chemtrails you know all, all of that stuff but kind of newer things as well and he's essentially dedicated his life to um creating a community so that people can come and you know 
asks the questions about conspiracy theories and he answers them in a very kind of understanding and empathetic way. But he's also written a book called Escaping the Rabbit Hole, which is, I'm really bad. I, sh- I know I shouldn't be promoting other people's books when I'm promoting my book, but there you go. <laughs> um, and, but he's, yeah, he's written a really good book that um, kind of goes into more of the detail about this because he has helped pull, you know, pull certain people out of the rabbit hole. Um, and so I would, if someone's looking for for that kind of specific advice, I would recommend that. That's Escaping the Rabbit Hole by Mick West. Did you say the man's mm-hmm. name was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah there you exactly. go. That's a very good tip. Read Eva's book first, right? Don't listen yes. to her. Read Eva's book exactly. first, right? <laughs> um, how, it, you know, I'm sure we all have personal experience of this, and I'm not going to ask anybody to name any names, right? But what I struggle most with on a personal level is having empathy for people who don't have any empathy themselves, right? Because mm. like, let's say there are trans people in my life, and I know how difficult it is for them to be talked about in the way that they're talked about at the moment, to be abused online, to be abused in real life. And I struggle with that, Aoife, and I struggle with people who sit outside uh, centres that are housing people seeking international protection and shouting mm-hmm. about rapists and shouting about, you know, military age males and unvetted males and that kind of thing. I, I find it hard. I'm not saying that I don't have empathy for them because on some level I do understand that they've been radicalised and they're not really in control of their own logic anymore. But fuck me, I find it hard to be kind to them. You know, it's like, yeah. So, but how, you know, it's almost like, you know, that sort of turn the other cheek thing. You know, how do we reach those people who have been radicalized to the extent that they take this out on the street against trans people, against people seeking international protection? Yeah, I mean, there is definitely. And I think that, you know, there was some criticism from people about the book when it came out that I was kind of being a bit too understanding of people. But I think that it's important to distinguish between the people that are marching on the streets like literally chanting really really hateful rhetoric and you know your friend's gran who like fell down the rabbit hole do you know what I mean so it's kind of like there, there's definitely there, there's it's an entire spectrum of people do you know what I mean and there are definitely people that are at the center of these movements that are hateful bigots and I have no problem saying that at all and you know I think you're you're getting to kind of um I suppose the increase in this activity, especially that we've seen in Ireland in the past six months, which is just to let you know, a level that I have never seen before. And I think that's a level that, that a lot of people have never seen in this country before as regards uh, that that kind of targeting and that's that hate kind of um, bubbling onto the streets. But that needs to be more of a, there needs to be, how do I put this nicely? I mean, there there needs to be a kind of community-led response to a lot of that stuff, I think. And there also needs to be more of a response from the state, from especially the Guardi, I think. I mean, and this has been a big conversation for the past couple of weeks of how the Guardi are kind of taking this little hands-off approach to, to these um to, to these protests. And that is the absolutely wrong approach. I mean, they are just you know, and no pun intended, but when you give them an inch, <laughs> they take a mile and they mm-hmm. absolutely are doing that they are you know I, I was listening to a um a twitter spaces um conversation a couple of days ago with a, a lot of the big players in this movement and they are just full of glee they think that they have they have crossed a threshold as regards the um acceptance of their belief and their ideology in this country um and that is reflective of a lack of response from the people in power to to you know the, a lack of balls I think in a lot of way excuse the language but like it's seriously a lack of balls to just stand up and say this is wrong and that you can't do this um so yeah there, as I say it is there, there's there's nuance needed and there's um to, to kind of understand the the different kind of I suppose the different ways that these movements can kind of 
you know bubble over onto real life do you know what i mean there's the kind of the the way that they reflect or they they affect people's personal relationships but then the way that they affect the people that they're targeting do you know what i mean and when it comes to that kind of hate speech and violence and abuse and harassment and stuff like that 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 just needs to be absolutely nipped in the bud so i don't know i'm kind of hoping that um the uh strategies will change somehow and they they will be able to kind of get more of a grasp on what's going on you know yeah i wish i could be hopeful but i haven't seen this happen in norway mm. i haven't seen it happen in finland sweden denmark and then pretty much all the other dominoes after that sweden was sort of the last one to fall to this i wouldn't be in one way in any way hopeful because the problem is that an awful lot of people on the right tend to appease the far right and they go yeah well mm. if we just give them this you know and historically you know that just has never worked you know we now have a a, a government in sweden that's supported by the votes of a party with its roots in neo-nazism its first mm. committee actually had a former ss member in it and they will still tell you to this day that they're not nazis and you know we are where we are to use that famous phrase um i read a book years ago about addiction uh it was a, a journalist named Johan harry who wrote a book called Ch chasing the scream and he examined the concept of addiction because he was an addict himself and he came to the conclusion that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety the opposite of addiction is connection and mm. this goes back to what you were saying about the idea the sense of community is it the case Aoife, that it it may actually be easy enough to de-radicalize people if we just show them that we love them and that they belong and i fucking hate myself for saying this now and the <laughs> idea that i might be giving sucker to people sitting outside these places but is that where you ultimately see the solution that by welcoming these people back into the greater us that that might be the solution to these things Oh, I don't know. Again, I don't know if there's a yes or no answer to that. And I think it's it definitely, again, it's going back to what I said in the last question, that it's reflective of there, there's there's different kinds of people that are involved in these movements. And there are some people that I don't think should, I don't think deserve to be kind of a part of civil society because that is not the kind of society that they want to see. Like, and they are absolutely determined to create a society that is based on division and hate. Do you know what I mean? But, but, but are they not, if I could interrupt you, are they not the tail that's wagging the dog, right? Because again, another parallel I draw, it's 10 years since we had riots here, one stop from where I'm sitting in Sweden, right? And for that to happen, what you need is a very, very small, dedicated number of people willing to fight. And you mm. need, you know, the, the, the silent compliance of the rest of the people, right? Same thing with what happened in Northern Ireland, right? Very, very few people were going to shoot people or set bomb or set up bombs, that kind of thing. But when you have the quiet compliance of the rest, that's what happened. But once that goes, the conditions for a riot then disappear. And I'm just wondering if there's a parallel to be drawn. Once that sort of, you know, quasi-silent uh, popular support disappears for these protests and for, you know, uh, drag queen story hour protests, that kind of thing, does it sort of die out by itself? Is Do any of these conspiracy theories die out by themselves? I mean, I don't think they ever die out. Um, I think that they're always there to some extent. And there's, you know, there's actually a lot of research that's come out in the past couple of years that says that conspiratorial thought has not really increased in the past couple of years. That's, and I don't really know if I if I believe in that or not, or if I think that that's accurate um, from what the, from what I can see. But conspiratorial thought is always there, and it's actually a kind of integral way to how humans think, unfortunately. Um, and I think it's just really easy to tap into that real irrational. Uh, you know a rational kind of mindset I suppose um for some people so I think you know it's a bit idealistic unfortunately I think Philip to think that um if we just open our arms and, and say come on come on here give us a hug and we'll we'll let you back in and everything will be grand like maybe there is a point in the future where where that is what needs to happen to kind of be able to to mend society but I I also just think that we're dealing with a very irrational movement in in a lot of ways do you know what i mean um 
So, and there's such a lack of trust. I mean, there's such a complete lack of trust w- within those, that movement to anyone who is outside it. Do you know what I mean? Anyone that is part of the quote unquote establishment, anyone who's part of the media, anyone who's part of any kind of institution that is, you know, meant to kind of protect people or, you know, anything. Yeah, kind of generally meant to protect people. Um, so it's kind of, you know, the idea that they would just kind of, I suppose, lay down their their beliefs and just be like yeah yeah that this is fine I, I yeah I just don't I don't think so unfortunately Philip I, I would you know what maybe if you had talked to me you know this time last year I, I might have had a different answer but I just think that what the the kind of rise of the activity that we've seen here in the past six months is kind of yeah it's kind of changed my my attitude towards it I think a, a little bit the genius out of the bottle a little bit. Um, one of the things uh, that I've seen happen before is like 20 years ago, the Sweden Democrats and Flemskitspartiet and all these other sort of far right parties in Scandinavia were laughing stocks. They were basically mm. boot boys who were attempting to swap suits for bomber jackets and that kind of thing. Now, some of them have been in government. The Sweden Democrats are de facto setting every policy that happens here because they're keeping a, a centre-right or right-wing government in power. Uh, where do you see this ending, both in terms of Ireland, but also globally? Is there a sort of an ebb and flow to this, like we saw in the 1920s, the 1930s, the early 1940s? Is this just something that has to play out before we change course and go back to a sense of solidarity? Or is there anything that we can do to stop it before it gets to that point? Yeah, I mean, I don't like predicting the future, first of all, because, you know, there's too much of that going on. I think just generally people like to think that they know what's going to happen in the next few years. Um, I think, right, let's take Ireland, first of all, right? Um, So traditionally, these parties have never had any kind of political success, right? Um, Now, that's, you know, our last election was February 2020. So, you know, a lot has changed since then. Um, There, it's very obvious that these movements are planning to... um, try try to win seats in the local elections next year i think that's going to be um something that we kind of have to prepare for um and i think it will also give us some indication of the level of support that these movements have it's quite hard people try to you know people ask me all the time if i have any kind of numbers of people that are involved in these movements but it's actually quite hard to determine that online because the kind of numbers for you know Facebook page likes or membership of Telegram groups is just not a reliable metric. Um, So I do think that we will kind of, you know, have some kind of an indication if they're going to have any kind of political success next year, right? But that is not the only way that they can achieve success. And again, we've seen that in the past six months. We've seen that um, there's been, you know, political figures that are kind of appeasing the far right here and are saying, um, are kind of, you know, framing them as just concerned citizens that are concerned for people's safety and things like that. Um, And then there's also the, I mean, the campaigns against the LGBTQ community are starting to become very, very apparent here as well. Um, There was, you know, moves by the Department of Education to take an LGBTQ book off the the recommended reading list for the junior cert curriculum on the back of what was really a very shortly short campaign that was waged by um, a couple of, groups I wouldn't even say they're groups they're probably about a dozen people um who very successfully kind of manipulated people around fears of um pedophilia and you know kind of introducing children to kind of sexual um content at a young age and things like that so it's very it's obvious that they can have a a real impact and that's sorry that's not even going into the fact that there's the the actual acts of violence that have been committed over the past Mm. six months as well um and just the general hate and discrimination and prejudice that is just 
you know, blanketed on minority communities constantly by these groups. So they are having a serious impact. Um, and I do, I don't see it. I see it getting worse before it gets better. Let's just put it like that. I don't think that, um, I don't think that Ireland is prepared for these groups. I think there's a lack of understanding of how these groups work from both the people in power, from a lot of the media as well. Um, and you, you can kind of see that in, in how the past six months have kind of played out. Um, so I think in order to kind of defeat these movements, to kind of push them back to the fringes where they belong, there needs to be a way more level of understanding of how they work. Um, they need to stop being promoted by the, by the, the mainstream media and kind of platformed by the mainstream media. Um, so yeah, I suppose generally, and that's probably the same internationally as well. I mean, I think that things can change really quickly. I think, you know, the US is such a kind of integral part of how these movements kind of work. You'll, you'll often see whatever plays out in the US will kind of eventually play out on, on this part in this side of the world in a few short months, you know what I mean? So I think whatever happens in the next election in the US will also be very telling as to how these kind of movements change. But yeah, I think without going into too many predictions, I think I would generally say that I think things will probably get worse before they get better. So Nice, I, nice I, and gloomy. <laughs> yeah, I always love to get such a cheery prognosis from you. Finally, Eva, <laughs> could I just ask you, how do you do this, right? Because there are times when, like, you know, I'll be sitting there on social media, I'll be working on something, that kind of thing. I just, I just haven't got the energy for this anymore. Mm. Now, I have been reading this bullshit for 20 years as well. So, you know, you kind of sort of run out of patience, especially because so much of it is just regurgitated and repeated. And it's the same bollocks, you know. I try not to engage on any level anymore. But how do you manage to do this work and keep saying, because I can't, imagine what it's like to be in those telegram groups and to see this nonsense day in and day out and then to try to make sense of it yeah I mean it is difficult and I'm not going to sugarcoat it you know what I mean there's definitely days where I wonder how the hell I got into this situation and I want to just go and become a gardener <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> uh, but um but I mean I suppose it's kind of all about smart work and you know what I mean it's not like I spend eight hours of my day sitting in telegram chats and, and looking at what they're saying as much as they might think that that's what I do that is not what I do um <laughs> so you know it's kind of about uh limiting the amount of time that you actually spend doing that and because we're kind of always working on kind of longer term research as well that doesn't really necessarily involve having to um kind of really look at this content on a, on a really close level like do you know what I mean um and then I just drink loads of pints. No, I'm only joking. I am. <laughs> I, um, Whiskey I is look... so much more than just a breakfast exactly. drink, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I just try and look after myself then. Kind of, you know, more generally exercise, kind of eat well and stuff like that. But I mean, it isn't something that I don't I mean. I don't think I could do it for the rest of my life. Like, definitely not. Um, and I think a lot of people that, that do this kind of work, especially in ISD, really kind of feel that as well. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of, it's quite difficult to surround yourself with like the worst opinions in the world for your entire working week. You know what I mean? Um, mm. And I just try and kind of detach from it as much as I can outside of work when I don't have the Twitter app on my phone anymore. Um, I don't really use social media, to be honest, outside of work. Um, and I just kind of try and, you know, read books and go outside and remember about the fact that the world is actually not as bad as it is portrayed to be on social media. Um, so, yeah, I suppose that's kind of generally how I how I get through my working week. <laughs> The book is called Web of Lies. It's published by Gill Books, those lovely people who uh, published a book of mine many years ago. Again, it's written by <laughs> Eva Gallagher. And no doubt, Eva, we shall return to this subject at some time in the near future. But for now, thanks so much for speaking to me. No problem. Cheers, Philip. <laughs>